Hello everyone, welcome to episode 86 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and as always I'll be your host today. Now today's episode from the title you can see is called African Slave Traders. Now whilst this isn't the kind of, it's not the topic I thought of when I sat down to plan this episode initially, I was thinking about um, a man called William Ansar Sesaraku and I wasn't sure how I was going to weave in everything about his life without just telling you a story about his life I wanted to give you a little bit more than that so kind of began thinking about The Woman King which is obviously the film that came out quite recently if you're listening to this um you know in November 2022 and it's been released um based on the um Agoji who were the women warriors in the kingdom of Dahomey um and I was thinking about that story. Um, If you haven't seen it, I would recommend you seeing it. Um, Maybe before you listen to this next breakdown of the film. Um, But I really enjoyed the film. Um, I think it's really important to see different depictions um, of of African history on screen. But understanding that it is on screen, it is a Hollywood blockbuster with a big budget, and it's going to be dramatised and, you know, made let's say, suitable for Hollywood in so many different ways. And so I took the film with a pinch of salt. I wasn't looking for a historical, historically accurate narrative. Um, however, there were some things that were definitely glossed over and dramatised a little bit too much for my liking. But the film was great. It doesn't detract from that. Fantastic acting, fantastic all round. And it was, yeah, an incredible film that I would recommend. But I was thinking about the fact that, um, you know, one of the critiques of the film is that the Kingdom of Dahomey, um, especially with the king that was um, featured in the film, John Boyega's character, King Gizo, um, you know, he was involved in the slave trade um, and they would have kidnapped and trafficked African people and sold them to Europeans um, who would have, you know, transported them through the Middle Passages and as part of the transatlantic slave trade and they could have ended up in in the Caribbean, in Africa, maybe in the UK. Um, But I wondered how far the Kingdom of Dahomey was involved in this trade of African people and also were the Agoji, the women warriors, were they complicit in it too and how far and how much of that was kind of glossed over in the film. Um, Now, we know that Dahomey was a key player when it came to trafficking West Africans, especially between um, 1680s and then the early 1700s, mostly selling them to European traders. um, And it was obviously their demand and demands of Europe that fueled um, the slave trade and the demands for free labour in the Caribbean, well, in the Americas, um, the Caribbean and kind of North America as we know it today. Um, And that kind of is part and parcel of why Dahomey had this um, kind of massive army that was constantly functioning, um, both a women's army, the Agoji, um, and then a male army as well. Um, and, you know, John Boyega's character in The Woman King is quite distancing himself from slavery a little bit. Like, you know, that's something my brother did. Um, it's not something we do anymore, but it kind of was... Um, accurately sorry historically um and it was only i think in 1852 um that the kingizo agreed to end the participation in the slave trade and that was after pressure from the british government which just (laughs) sounds crazy to me um you know that it was the british that kind of wanted not want necessarily wanted them stopping it wasn't you know everybody in britain but 
um, formally speaking, um, officially, but not officially, because it still continued. Um, obviously, Britain abolished uh, slavery in its own colonies in 1833. So it was, you know, 1852, which is obviously a little bit later, um, that Dahomey kind of stopped their participation. It was also the case that the Agogian regiments were recruited from enslaved women often, um, as young as 10 years old, uh, who were captured um, and brought into the army if they could survive the training um, and were suitable. It was also poor families um, where women and girls came from and those girls that were classed as rebellious, um, they were taken or given to the army to train, um, which we kind of see in the film through Nawi's character who refuses to marry the suitor that her father has um, suggested for her and, you know, she's like, not not on my watch um, and off she goes. She's brought to the king to join the Agoji. Um, so... I kind of say all this to say and I really didn't want to talk about the film for an extended period of time because this episode is not about that. However, it was kind of, you know, one of the strands that tied up to, to create this episode in my mind. But the fact that we know that some African people participated and profited in the transatlantic slave trade, that is not news to anyone. Um, in the grand scheme of things, though, in the grand scheme of the human race, we have to remember the concepts like blackness and black power and like black unity and just people, anyone of a certain hue of pigment in their skin being referred to as black and then subsequently having to be part of black unity is an extremely new concept in the grand scheme of the human race. So to expect unity between every single person on the African continent and be then shocked that slavery occurred when slavery occurred in so many other societies prior to um, the period we're talking about um, it's just a bit ridiculous really in some ways Um, you know I think there's kind of a myth that's pushed an overgeneralization a gross one that Africa is this like single singular entity and all people in Africa are one Um, but realistically they come from like thousands of different ethnicities nations, kin groups, identities, Um, you know, Africa, in terms of the countries that we know it to be made up of today, that was drawn on a map by Europeans. They carved up Africa. And so there are groups of people that, you know, fit into different ethnicities that have been pushed into one country or been split into several countries um, when they're probably all all one people or not. Um, And, you know, that all goes to say that this idea, this expectation that there should have been some kind of solidarity or unity across all Africans in the kind of 17th century, 18th century, 19th century and so on um, is definitely problematic and it oversimplifies um, the continent as a whole. Um, I think the woman king did well in pushing back against that narrative, um, not just because it spoke about African slave traders, but because it kind of touched on on a part of history, on a kingdom like Dahomey that I don't think is is too well known about and the Agoji weren't a group of uh, warriors that I knew much about apart from references to the kind of woman army in the Black Panther Marvel movies because they were based off of loosely um, the Agoji. So, yeah, you know, it's good that these narratives, these um, stories are coming forth even if I think it's in a hyper-dramatised way. I think there's still some benefit to that. 
Now, to continue on with my point on the topic of slavery, which, as you know, is not something I like talking about, but it kind of was on my mind. Um, And Eric Williams has a quote, and it goes... And I've read it before on this podcast. I couldn't remember for the life of me what episode I had read it in. But if you do remember, let me know. But he says... Um, Eric Williams being um, Trinidadian, he was a writer, he was first Prime Minister of Trinidad and um, a scholar and everything else. He said, slavery in the Caribbean has been too narrowly identified with the Negro. A racial twist has thereby been given to what is basically an economic phenomenon. Slavery was not born out of racism, rather was the consequence of slavery. End quote. Now that speaks to the fact that Slavery um, did not come about because of racism. It wasn't a deliberate choice to um, enslave people from Africa because of the colour of their skin. Um, The point wasn't, Williams goes on to say, unfree labour in the New World was brown, white, black and yellow, Catholic, Protestant and pagan, quote. Um, And, you know, it goes to say that, you know, as we know and as I've said, um, slavery occurred in many societies prior to... Um, the transatlantic slave trade. However, the impact of the transatlantic slave trade is racism. It's not the same that it would have been then. There was a prejudice that might have existed in the time, the 18th century and so on. Today we see a racism, systemic, overt, covert, in everyday society, you know, in institutions and whatever else. Um, But it is a direct consequence of slavery. Um, because this racial twist was added to this economic phenomenon, which the economic phenomenon being free labour. And if you have people working for free, you can turn a bigger profit. Now, there are economists that argue against that and have different theories, but we're not doing an economic history episode today. And I say all of those things, all 10 minutes of that, to say that African slave traders did not engage um participate profit from the kidnap and trafficking of other african people because some i don't know internal hatred internal racism self-hate prejudice kind of thing it was simply because of economics um it created a lot of wealth for them um and it was you know they dehumanized those people to a point where they were property so it was simply like trading another item um human life had no value in this sense. It only had value to the owner, which was those who were kidnapping them or buying them, selling them. Um, And unfortunately, that's the kind of way you have to understand it. I think to, like, not necessarily rationalised behaviour of African slave traders, but to to just, I guess, understand it, really, um, to make it make sense. Um, So what I wanted to talk about today... Um, and the story that I had in mind when I was conceptualising this episode um, comes from a new book that's come out that I really like, um, although I have only just started reading it. Um, And it's by Professor Hakeem Adi, and it's called African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History. Um, And it's like a, it's a big one. It's a big book, another great book. Um, But it it really does take a quite wide survey um, of African and Caribbean people in Britain. I really like the text because, you know, I do like a big um, kind of historical charting 
of um, African and Caribbean people in Britain, you know how much I enjoy Peter Fryer's staying power. But this updates it because, you know, that was literally published in 1984. Um, so Professor um, Hakeem Adi's book takes us all the way to um, 2020 and the Black Lives Matter movement um, and campaigns, well, the resurgence of it in 2020. Um, and it starts as early as um, the kind of Roman Empire with the Libyan legionaries patrolling Hadrian's Wall, goes through um, the Black Tudors and some of the African explorers that would have been part of Sir Francis Drake's um, explorations around the globe. Um, and, you know, it goes through the 20th century, 21st century to, to BLM, um, which I think is a really important and necessary text that we needed. Um, and I will be drawing much inspiration from this text for this podcast over the next few months and years to come, I am sure. So, um, in a book launch for this book, um, Hakeem was going through the um, some of the people that were featuring in the text and William Ansar um, Sesaraku was in there and the story just stood out to me and I've been thinking about it ever since. This was months ago. I've just been thinking about this story of this man and I just felt like I need to share it so that's what I'm going to do in the context of African slave traders, the woman king, this new book um, and everything else, racism, Eric Williams, society, you name it. William Ansar as he's often known as is estimated to have been born around 1736 in what we now know to be Ghana, specifically in one of the um, kind of most prominent and largest slave trading ports, um, the Gold Coast. His father, uh, John Carenti, as he's known, um, was the head of government in the region um, and the chief and one of the local officials responsible for supplying um, enslaved Africans to the European traders. Um, and he became an important figure for a lot of any people that were living in that area or training in the city um, at that time. So, you know, he's a son, William Ansar, the son of a very wealthy man who is profiting from the uh, slave trade. Um, he's from the Ghanaian Fanti people, um, and they're also based next to a trading post um, that the Dutch used as well um, on the West African Gold Coast, or as it was known. Um, his father also traded in gold um, and so had a sizable amount of wealth. Now, it was common practice in those days for people of wealth um, and status in Africa to send their children to Europe to learn the ways of business, improve the trading prospects and get an education. Um, and so William Ansar was no different and he was sent to England. So William Ansar was set up and ready to go um, however, the European captain that was given the responsibility of taking him um, actually uh, took him to Bridgetown in Barbados and sold him into slavery. Shock horror. Can you believe it? Um, you know, this this man who sent his son to be educated, who profits um, from the slave trade and is active in it, has an active role in, in the trafficking of African people. This same fate that he has bestowed upon so many others has now fallen upon his own son. Um, so he's in Barbados and the captain that has kind of captured him and knows truly who he really is, um, not an enslaved person, um, but a man of nobility and status um, in that region, 
has passed away. He's died. Um, and it wasn't long before his father actually found out what had happened. Um, and he just put his foot down completely, refused to deal with any English traders until his son was release, released. And when you think about the fact that, you know, he's in this trading port and mixing with so many different Europeans, he refuses to deal with any uh, English ones until a solution has has been found and his son's been found and returned home. Um, and to avoid diplomatic problems, um, the Royal African Company um, actually made sure that his son was freed, um, paid for him to be freed um, from where he was in, in Barbados. From there, he was taken to London and he was under the protection of the Earl of Halifax. So, you know, you can already see him going from... Um, you know, position of status and power and wealth in um, West Africa to London and now mixing with the elites um, and the statist and the titled in London. Um, you know, he's treated as a foreign prince. Um, he's given the name Prince Anamobi, which is the region that he's come from um, in West Africa. He's introduced to George II. He's like a, a celebrity. Um, and, you know, the treatment of him obviously completely in contrast to the treatment of actual enslaved people, permanently enslaved people, um, that would have, have faced the same fate as him, but it would have, you know, not had a, a rich father to remove them from that system because they were kidnapped and trafficked. Um, and it's just interesting that his kind of... Re the reception to him and to other people like him um, in Britain, how that changes, but... It's also important because I think it highlights, and we're going to get into some artwork that depicts his life shortly, um, the fact that we have that, it highlights um, the kind of uh, disparity, shall we say, in people, African people in Britain, which Professor Hakeem Adi is talking about in his book. Um, this is just another example um, of an African person in Britain. Um, in the 18th century. So as I mentioned, he was treated like a foreign prince in Britain um, and he was compared to Oronoko. That was a fictional African prince in a novel by Afro Ben, um, who was also sold into slavery. Um, and when he went to attend a performance um, of Thomas Southern's play based on the novel, um, he actually, all the stories say that he, he ran out, um, overcome with emotion um, because of how much he resonated with that story because um, it was obviously so in likeness to what had happened to him, um, which kind of highlights the fact that he really understood the emotions and, like, upset and the, yeah, the distraught, how distraught he was when it came to potentially being sold into slavery but was complicit within that system. Um, that was trafficking people. It's very interesting, um, as I'm sure you can imagine. Now, um, just to kind of highlight just how how high in society he was and, and people like him were, um, I kind of wanted to draw attention to some artworks that depict his life um, that are actually currently held, I think prints of them are held at the National Portrait Gallery, um, as well as there's originals that are separate, but there's a print of um, William Ansar, um, and there's also a print of um, Ayuba Suleiman Diallo, who kind of had a similar story um, to Ansar. Um, and so in um, 1740, 
nine, I believe, Gabriel Matthias, um, he painted Ansar. Um, and then this is um, kind of what's left of of this tale, um, the, these portraits, because, you know, the ordinary man or woman was not having their portrait done in London um, in the 18th century. That was something that was reserved for high society. Um, and it was published in a gentleman's uh, magazine um, as an engraved portrait. Um, and, you know, it's quite atypical of the period as it presents a black person, African person, um, you know, within the traditions of European portraiture, the art form. Um, black people, African people that were captured, um, oftentimes in this era, were enslaved or in positions of servitude, um, with an exception of Fanny Eaton, who I have an episode on, um, who was a muse in the pre-Raphaelite era, um, an artist's muse, um, and not an enslaved person. Um, and so we have these um, this portrait that is done of uh, William Ansar and the other one of Ayuba Suleiman Diallo, um, who is another known figure in London society at that time. Just to whiz through his story, which is also referenced in Hakim Adi's um, book. Um, but he was known as um, Job Ben Solomon when he was in London. He's from a leading Muslim Fulani family in what's now known as Senegal. Um, he was involved in the slave trade, similarly to Ansar, and was kidnapped along with his interpreter on the African coast in 1731. He was on his way to sell some deals to his father and he was sold to the Royal African Company and transported to Maryland in the United States. And he actually was on a plantation for two years um, and survived. Um, he wrote to his father, which helped to free him, writing in Arabic um, and kind of language skills um, and the level of um, yeah language skills he had and his ability to translate the Quran um, into different languages um, as, and he was, you know, clearly proven himself to be a scholar of Islam, um, even down to, in the portrait of him, the mark on his forehead um, depicted in the paintings was, is kind of a, um indication of where he would bow his head in prayer so often um, it would mark it. Um, and so, yeah, these two, two men are, are captured um, in portraits um, in the 18th century in, in London. Um, you know, representing the elite coming from aristocratic and royal families. Um, both men were presented in royal court and regarded as gentlemen. They were part of the upper class despite their race um, and where they'd come from. They were seen as wealthy African men who should hold enslaved people as property and not be property um, and kidnapped and enslaved themselves. Their education, especially Diallo's ability um, in Arabic and, you know, through translation, just highlighted of how basically British society would have seen them as just completely in the wrong place, being enslaved. That was not for them. They were too high up. They were um, socially uh, too powerful, too wealthy, too educated, um, too religious in some ways to be enslaved. Um, and so that was the case for these these two men who are are then captured in art um, and their stories are kind of preserved in that form um, as those paintings are uncovered in later years. Now, just to kind of tie the loose ends of these stories, um, both men um, were, you know, not enslaved again. They were able to return to their families, um, you know, without that happening again. 
Um, and interestingly, they both returned to continue um, profiting and engaging with the slave trade, um, kidnapping African people and selling them to Europeans. They continued to do that with their families um, and their families continued to build wealth in that way. Um, so, yeah, in 1748, uh, William Ansar was received as a prince and gained um, the respect of London's high societies, as we said. Then he returns um, to um, the Gold Coast um, and he takes up work uh, as a writer um, at Cape Coast Castle um, and he ends up working as a slave trader eventually, having uh, left the Cape Coast um, on bad terms. Diallo returns to Africa, returns to selling African people um, and is again a part of the slave trade um, and I just thought these stories were interesting just because you know I was thinking about the woman king as I said and um, you know some of the the things that were left out of that narrative um, and the hand that the kingdom of Dahomey had in in trading uh, enslaved African people to Europeans um, and I just thought it was interesting to highlight this side of history and there's so many other stories of uh, African people that engaged in the trade in America um, and in the Caribbean as well, and those that would have been transported over to those regions um, and then acquired wealth and then, you know, joined the people that would have formerly enslaved them to enslave others. Um, but I think it speaks a lot to the the economic uh, implications and the wealth kind of implications as opposed to racial ones, um, which is the point of bringing Eric Williams into the, the narrative of this episode. Um, it also highlights, I think, that um, there is kind of just another grey area in a topic, slavery, that is often portrayed as so black and white. Um, I think I think it was my history teacher that said there are also many grey areas in slavery. It's not just a black and white issue. And I think this issue of... African slave traders really does speak to that. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really do hope you have enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, please do come back next week uh, for another what I hope will be fantastic episode. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.